0: relevant to this group, um, Malavika has been long at the fore of privacy in a developing country context, which we didn't necessarily get in the West uh, or the North, how important that was and the challenges that it was going to uh, give rise to. And I think her um, positioning herself in this place uh, with development, uh, with government and governance, with uh, privacy and surveillance, um, which we have become increasingly attuned to, even those of us who are already attuned. is, uh, uh, is of course very timely as you have elections in the world's largest democracy, um, but people thinking about this issue or these suites of issues around the world. So I am um, really excited that um, Malavika is gonna be able to share some of both her um, knowledge and her humor. Um, that is one of the things she's known for around here is not just being a smart gal uh, who does great work, but also being a core member of the community and a real um, convener of good people uh, to gather together for social and uh, intellectual purposes. Um, so she has done that again for us today, um, and uh, I would ask you that you please join me in welcome, welcoming ma to her lunch talk.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually the stand. Would you like to share one of you? I'm glad Colin mentioned the North-South thing. It's one of my pet peeves and hates. Um, And Hisham Almirat from Global Voices and I have decided that we're going to organize a conference that's called South by South-South. So (laughs) you heard it here first. And someone wanted to know where we'd located, and we were thinking maybe Iceland. uh, So there is no free lunch, so we're going to start you with a quiz. I'm going to show you a couple of slides. Well, not a couple, um, about five. And I'm going to ask you to see if you can guess what links all of them. You might know what links them, but I'd love to know how. So this is your first image. That's the second one. Should I get out of the way somehow? Sorry. That's the third. This is the trick one, so don't feel bad if you don't get it. That's the fourth. let you read that for a second there are clues in there and the final one sorry if it's a little bright in here and you can't see it um, but I think you have enough info so going backwards that one this one takers what links all of these things and how
2: this comes Half drinks for half answers will also do nicely.
1: Generally... <laughs> Anyone? Or at least start Just describing. Hand it the corner. Yeah, go ahead. There
0: are always to identify individuals.
1: I was looking for something more specific, but yeah. You want to take a crack at why? Or.
0: Well, I'm assuming the cilantro's in there because there's a genetic trait that tells whether cilantro tastes like cilantro or tastes like soap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You started with the trick one. Bad choice. <laughs> 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 that that, was, that the was the evil one. I was <laughs> just wondering what links all of these, and if you could explain how. I mean, the link is probably easy. It's the Indian biometric scheme, because that's what I'm talking about. But I was wondering if you could link why these images relate to the ID scheme. So let me talk you through them. So those were the images. so that the first one was the Afghan girl the National Geographic picture the famous Steve McCurry one and this is what she looked like 18 years later when they went back to find her so clearly living in Afghanistan isn't good for your complexion so um, this is what she looked like and this was the first instance where they actually used the Daugman um, iris scanning method to actually Mm -hmm. identify someone from a print photograph uh, which had never been done before So this is them actually checking, because when they went back to look for her, um, everybody said, well, I'm the girl in the picture. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, well, we don't believe you. There were people trying to sell their wives, saying, well, that's the one really she is. Um, So this was when they actually went in there with medical help to check that this was really her, to match the iris scans. So this was the first instance where it was done from a picture. Um, I showed you a bunch of fingerprints. So that was a set of fingerprints collected under colonial rule because the thought was that uh, you know, these lumpen illiterate Indians don't know how to actually sign their names or commit to contracts and how do we trust their word? You know, The natives can't be relied on to deliver on anything. So um, how about we just get them to at least seal contracts with their fingerprints and we can hold them to it and given the volume of people we had, it just meant that it formed one of the largest databases of fingerprints ever. So that was Francis Galton's collection of fingerprints, which then founded the basis for Edward Henry's fingerprint classification system, which we still use. So that was the original sort of biometric database that informed his research, so it became an indexing system. The Google Doodle, that was on Alan Turing's anniversary, and this is Alan Turing, and this is a very strange connection that I would only expect someone who reads the Indian newspapers to get. Somewhere, where are you? Um, so. No, so Nandan Nilekani, who rolled out the Indian biometric ID project, bought a summer home in Uti in India and then gets a letter from the estate of Alan Turing saying, you do realize you're living in his house. This was his grandparents' house when they lived in India. So this, And he didn't realize. And you know, he's a big IT czar who made his money off computers, and he didn't realize he was living in Turing's house. Um, so that was also a kind of sneaky connection. This one, I thought somebody might get this. Uh, so this was something that came out during WikiLeaks. This was the cable gate bit of WikiLeaks. This was a cable sent from the State Department under Clinton to the Embassy in Delhi, asking all kinds of really, really detailed questions about the Indian scheme. Questions that I frankly wish the government had asked before rolling out the project. We might have seen a very different project, but this is one of the things that leads me to say that you know, most people say, well, this is a project happening in India. Why should I care? It doesn't touch me. I, I don't really understand and it doesn't affect me. But this is why it does, because governments around the world are watching to see what happens in India to then import it into their countries once it's been tested on 1.2 billion people. Because one of the fears is that biometrics have never been tested on this scale. So why not try it out on the largest, you know, one of the largest populations? So these are all the questions saying, you know, who are the vendors? What is it being used for? Ports, immigration customs who are the you know which are the devices um, they were nervous that it might be used for terrorist activity in the region that they would be used as sort of breeder documents that once people got into this database they could then apply for passports, pretending to be indian all kinds of things could then flow from that single piece of identification so these are all the things that sort of you know tie the project together and i'm now going to show you oh and the last one which was the um, that one is actually the only known um, image of the passes in South Africa that launched Gandhi's political activism. He originally, he was a lawyer. He didn't really care about um, anything political. And this was what fired him up, kind of like how this project has fired me up. I I always like to think that my PhD was born out of anger. And I think PhDs as an anger management strategy are not to be undermined. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, that's where it stayed. I haven't actually finished it, but – so this is one of the passes that Gandhi's activism uh, began with burning, so um, I was going to show you a brief um – Ladies and gentlemen
2: we have asked you to gather here to help us proclaim our right to be treated as equal citizens of the empire. We do not seek conflict. We know the strength of the forces arrayed against us. Know that because of them, we can only use peaceful means, but we are determined that justice will be done. The symbol of our status is embodied in this pass, which we must carry at all times, but which no European even has to have. The first step towards changing our status is to eliminate this difference between us. Hello. You're right brilliantly, but we have much to learn about helping men. We do not want to ignite the fear or hatred of anyone, but we ask you, Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh, to help us light up the sky and the minds of the British authorities with our defiance of this injustice. We will now burn the passes of our committee and its supporters. We ask you to put your passes on the fire with the conviction. Those Parsis are government property. And I will arrest the first man who tries to burn one. Take him away.
1: show you another one which brings us to the present this involves sound lights music action as you would expect at any pres- presentation involving India <laughs> collecting every single piece of information that you can about someone. Um, and I was going to show you the ad, because it's really compelling. It's it's not just about, um, it, it's, it's this very colorful film about diversity, plurality, about, you know, look at all these wonderful costumes people are wearing, look how diverse India is. You'd be forgiven for thinking it was a tourism advertisement. And it doesn't get to the question of identity until about minute 3.2 or something and where, you know, you see somebody sort of sheepishly, you know, touching something and giving in a fingerprint. But otherwise, it's all about nation building. The whole narrative is about feel part of one country, feel proud to be Indian, let's all walk forward together. It's about, you know, the light will shine, and, you know, you'll be taken into a new dawn. It's this very seductive vision of inclusion and belonging. And you can see why that is, because India as a country is a very artificial political construct. But also. Um, you can see why there's such a desperate need to be identified and be made visible to the government that something like an identification scheme is so compelling that they don't just sell it as identification, they sell it as identity. And I find it deeply problematic that through the project you keep conflating the two things and actually you'll find it's not even identification, it's actually authentication. It doesn't even go so far as to identify you. Um, It doesn't sort of say X is... X, it says X is who they say they are. That's all it does in terms of matching. Um, So these are some of the numbers. We're a big country, so everything looks huge. I think of this as a sort of ecosystem for errors because these are the, you know, this is the sort of ecosystem of actors involved. And you can imagine all the different points of failure at which things can go wrong. With this many enrolling stations, operators, and this kind of population, data leakages are happening all over the place. With the best intentions, and I think this is one of the problems with sort of techno utopian systems in general, but especially with biometrics, that uh, even when they f- succeed, they still fail, or even when they are seen to fail, they succeed. You have this weird sort of dichotomy where you have, you know, what Bruce Schneier would call security theater or identity theater, where people feel that they're being um, enrolled and re- registered and actually give, given something tangible as a benefit. But not necessarily the case when you keep trying to authenticate and find you keep getting rejected. Um, This is something that I have tried to grapple with saying, you know, we've got other forms of ID. Why do we need this? And the answer you'll find from the government is well, we've got fraud, we've got ghosts in the machines, all the other systems don't work, they're not comprehensive. You know, tax only covers those who pay tax, and that's just in terms of income levels, but also the ones who are avoiding it. you know, ration cards you know, extend to certain people are entitled to subsidies. Um, none of the systems we have are completely um, comprehensive and universal in that sense. So the idea is that this will transcend all of the problems that the old systems have, which isn't a bad idea. Um, this is what's being collected. This, my friend Willow drew this. Everyone at Berkman knows her. She clearly can't spell that should be a Z. Um, it, might, it might have been corrected in a later slide. So this is what's being collected, all ten fingerprints, both iris scans, facial recognition, and eight fields of demographic data. Um, these are some of the posters that you'll find with this you know, vision of inclusion. And another deeply problematic thing, who are you? We have the answer, i.e. you don't exist until we tell you we do. Um, I find that troubling. But you can see why it's necessary in a country where so many people have been left out of progress, have been left out of India's growth. That it's a very seductive, it's not just a myth, there is a genuine need to identify people and bring them into India's success story, such as it is. Um, interestingly, you know, we're a big country, we don't just stick to one a biometric project when we do it, we have two. And they're both running in parallel. Um, this is the more evil one, this is the National Population Register, the other one was the unique ID. And you can see that's the one they spent public-private partnership money on with a snazzy external advertising agency. This is the internal government project done with 1950s you know, style design and logos. And this doesn't even bother with the whole, oh, we're trying to include you, it's voluntarily, let's embrace you. This is very much, if you don't do this, you will get fined and sent to jail. This is, and it's true because this is being done on the back of the census exercise where you don't have the option to say, I don't need this or I don't want it or I will not register. Um, Here is one of the compelling reasons behind the project. It's the sense that it's one of the reasons. I mean, the government has its reasons for inclusion and delivery and cutting down corruption and a whole bunch of other things that it thinks an identity platform will help with. But on the cynical side, and why is the private sector so interested in it and involved and is all over it, it's because of this whole bottom of the pyramid kind of logic of saying, Well, the middle class is saturated. Who do we sell products to next? Who do we extend systems to, banking, credit? Um, How do we form a reasonable system of creditworthiness? Let's just bring everyone into it. So there are good and bad reasons for doing this, but this is one of the rationales for rolling out a project like this. Um, There are a whole bunch of architectural and technical issues that I find with it. One is you split hairs between what the authority will do and won't do. So they say it's voluntary. But if other people want to make it compulsory to get a benefit or a service, well, that's fine. We didn't make it you know, compulsory. We're not saying you have to get a number. Oh, but you want a mobile phone? You want a bank account? Well, then you might need that. So this, you know, this myth of voluntariness, uh, which the NPR doesn't even pretend to do. Um, and it also says, in a way, this is one of the great sort of myths in the ID system that people think it's a card, but there is no physical artifact. It's just a number like the social security number, which gets sent to you with you know a piece of paper, and if you want, you can cut it out and put it in your wallet so you remember it. But it's not meant to be a you know authenticating document that you keep presenting. But people's need for an ID is so desperate that they are cutting it out, laminating it, and saying, well, this is who I am. Um, and then the biometrics are being used to authenticate them. Um, but they say, well, we're not giving you a card. Oh, but if other actors want to give you a card, well, that would be fine. If your bank wants to issue you an ATM card, that happens to have this printed on it, well, that's fine. So there is a risk that this can turn into a de facto surveillance system. Um, there are issues around dirty data, and this is why the idea of rolling out biometrics in India is so troubling for me, because A, we know they don't work except you know, in clean lab conditions so well. India has a lot of dust. India has a lot of old people, malnutrition people, people with cataracts people of darker skin. So not exactly your ideal demographic for rolling out a biometric project, but we're trying to do it. And there is a hope that you know you can fix this as the system self-corrects, as you get to know more. And I found that sort of raising these kinds of technical issues don't get you very far in India, because we're a nation full of software developers. Somebody will say, that's just you know settings and parameters. We'll fix it. It's not a real issue. Like, now we'll fix it. Are you OK with it now? Um, so that doesn't you know, touch a lot of the other issues that I have with it. Um, it's hard to guard against offline use. Um, a lot of people, you know, I've, I've talked to police commissioners, I've talked to various other people saying, and they've said, look, we don't even care if the system is impenetrable, if it's you know, secure and your servers are kept wherever, and it's all fabulous, you have in all kinds of authentication. What is going to stop the guy saying, here, give me your finger, come and press it against this, and I'm going to take half of your rations? Nothing is going to guard against that. Um, there are issues around verification prior to getting this because you have a chicken and egg problem. People need ID. They don't have documentation because we're poor at recording births and deaths. People are homeless. They they don't have anything that you know documents them, which is why they need this. How do we solve it by asking them to produce documentation to prove they are who they are? So there's this sort of circular thing. So India has taken this very innovative step of saying, you know, we sort of need to lower the standards and make a few trade-offs when you're trying to be inclusive. Um, with this sort of you know crazy population and people who don't have documents so how about we have an introducer system you have an id you can refer someone who needs one and of course this is you know a country full of creative maneuvering we've got a whole gray market in identity where people are saying oh yeah he's been my patient for years i know i cured his cancer here's a document showing he's been my patient for five years so you have a whole system of people pretending to introduce people that they've never seen in their lives for a fee Um, you have all kinds of issues around whether the devices can be spoofed. That's why there is no physical ID, because they felt that, you know, that just the problem of sorting through fakes will be so huge that it's just not worth even doing. Um, it's just easier to have a number and to have the biometrics, to have your body as password, which leads to all kinds of other questions around fetishization, around the body as password, around self-incrimination against your legal rights, around how secure it is, and around scope creep, how once it's already in the system, you know, are you then going to sort of, you know, be exercise constitutional rights over this? So it raises all kinds of scary issues. Um, given the sort of federated architecture, there's an issue of whether transactions can be initiated by people who are not actually the owners of these biometrics. It's in the bank. Someone has it in the database. Can they transfer money using your biometrics without you being around? Um, I've already mentioned the last one. So I've talked about some of these already, and one key thing is there are two key legal issues. One is... This hasn't been passed by Parliament, which is kind of staggering. It's been running since 2009. 600 million people have been registered, and there is no statute that governs this till today. Uh, There was a unique Identification Authority of India that was set up, which is rolling this out. There was a bill that finally got drafted. It finally went to Parliament after civil society was screaming about it. And um, it got thrown out by the Standing Committee with very, very strong, scathing remarks saying, not just saying, you know, tweak this and tweak that, and you know, we need some drafting changes. Basically, saying, do we even need this project? Why is it being done? Where is the cost benefit analysis? How much money are you actually going to save? You keep talking about leakages. And citing the UK ID scheme, which was scrapped, saying they couldn't make their system work for a smaller population with a more wealthy country. They couldn't guarantee its privacy and security, and they were worried about civil, civil liberties concerns. Um, why do we think we're going to be able to roll this out? The answer, of course, is very clear. We have cheaper software developers. We can fix what they couldn't. And then we'll sell it to everyone else. Um, but this is something that's going to keep coming up. They're, they're going to um, re-submit it before parliament. And one of the other things is we don't have a strong data protection law. We don't have a horizontal data protection law like you have in Europe, which you know, is cross-sectoral. We have some vertical data protection laws for particular sectors, financial, consumer protection, but nothing really comprehensive. Nothing that serves as principles around how do you collect, what do you store, who can look at it, when do you share, you know, what kind of consent models do you have. We have none of those things. Um, I mentioned earlier that, I think it was in the abstract, that I wanted to frame it against the larger ecosystem of surveillance that this sort of facilitates or enables. And that's, so it's not just the ID that I'm worried about. It's the fact that it will be a single identifier that helps to join Various databases that till now have functioned peacefully in silos, peacefully, inefficiently, whatever. But the fact is that you haven't been, you know, profiling people and forming a very rich idea of who they are through their transactions across, you know, tax authorities, traffic, driving, insurance, health, education. You're not joining up all of these things. So there's a certain security in this, um, but now the UID is going to be the single field that will link the national intelligence grid which is going to join up 21 different databases. There's going to be a DNA data bank, and there's something called the CMS, which is the centralized monitoring system. Um, so will this lead to a sort of system of total information awareness? Um, the authority likes to think it is going to become ubiquitous, and it's going to be used for absolutely everything. They do say they would like it to be voluntary, and that you know if there's a demand, people will want it. And it's kind of, it's an app ecosystem. It's great. People will plug and play. Um, but what we're now finding is, legi- is case law, where Uh, people have actually been petitioning the court saying, why am I not getting access to my pensions because I don't have this one single ID? I have 16 other forms of ID. Why is this being privileged over every other form of ID that I can have? You haven't banned the others. You haven't canceled them. You haven't delegitimized them. Why are you now privileging this one unique ID with biometrics over everything? And what if I've been trying to get one? What if I believe in this scheme? I've been waiting for eight months to get it. Um, And you've got all kinds of instances where even the i d letters themselves are just lying in piles in garbage or you know in ditches on the street where they haven't actually reached people, so when you don't have the kind of uniform and comprehensive coverage that you would like, can you insist that it's the single you know way by which people access and enter a system um, There's a huge tension between privacy and transparency because this is a country you have to understand where corruption has been so endemic and so uh... prevalent that anything that even hints at providing transparency and making government accountable is fabulous But the sort of trade-off between privacy and transparency such that transparency is something that's been building for a while and there's a lot of anger and resentment in india privacy is a pretty new thing and most people even very well-educated liberal you know people who i think should know better still think of privacy, you know, Indians as a nation, as a culture, we're not private, like, who cares? Um, Why should we care? And sometimes it gets, um, you know, flattened out into very glib statements, like, when people don't have food on the table, do they really need privacy? You know, sort of the whole Maslow's hierarchy kind of argument. And I think the one disclaimer that I need to make here in sort of checking my privilege, I, I kind of, don't usually get to check privilege so it's nice to be able to do it it's kind of like a matrushka doll thing of privilege um, everybody has something they can check in so um, I don't need the ID I can probably function without it but I think um, there are enough people talking about how wonderful the project is how it's going to be transformative about the benefits the how corruption is going to be fixed and there is truth to some of it, and there's certainly, it's a laudable goal to actually tackle these huge socio-economic problems. But I think if it's my job to sort of bang on about the privacy and security side of it, I'm happy to be the one who does it and gets vilified for being privileged and overeducated. If that's the cross I bear, I'm happy with that. Um, someone once told me, that, introduced me as, you know this is Miss Privacy India. And I said, can you not make it sound like Miss Universe? And this is a very geeky privacy data protection expert, and he just looked at me very seriously and said, "In my mind, those are the same thing," and I'm okay with that. Um, So I'm worried about function creep, but I also have this sort of, you know, very existential question: saying if you've never defined what the project is meant to do, and you say it'll fix absolutely everything as a silver bullet, can silver bullets have mission creep? You don't have a mission. What are you creeping? Um, I've mentioned some of these issues, and I think. one of the reservations i have is that although you may have the best of breed technology and i believe that it does i believe that mr nilekani and his team i mean he's assembled you know the top uh, people in the world who've come back wanting to contribute to india's development who've done it for free uh, you know spend months in india developing this and i've talked to we- you know vendors of iris scan devices and all kinds of other things and they've all said well actually it may seem invasive but India has gone about it the right way because if you just relied on one fingerprint, that wouldn't work when you have people who have leprosy or who have bad quality fingerprints from manual labor. Um, you need the iris scans to fix the problems of fingerprints not being enough. Um, it may seem creepy to you, and yes, there are risks with that, but on the other hand, it's going to be a lot more secure and it's going to include more people. So I think if, if, you know, from a technology point of view, if you look at it purely as a technical project, it may be amazing, and it's wonderful what the you know the fact that they've tr- they've actually enrolled 600 million people in India in five years is is, is staggering, uh, literally like millions a day. But if you actually start to think about, well, actually, is it a technical fix? Is it just an identification authentication problem we're trying to fix, or are we actually trying to solve a broader socio economic problem? Are we trying to solve welfare delivery? Are we t- because that's what it's meant to help with you know getting food grains to people allowing the right people to get things um, only the ones who are entitled to benefits to get them in that process are we criminalizing poverty are we making people you know tag themselves and identify themselves in order to get a passport into the system is that fair is that safe Um, can do they even know what they're signing up for when the project was first rolled out in a couple of villages you you know the journalists fresh on the ground went and you know did their little box pop saying, you know, what do you think? Is this going to change your lives? And you had these little old biddies going, "Um, yeah, that nice doctor in the lab coat just told me I'm cured. And they were going, cured? What do you mean? Well, previously, my doctor said I had a cataract and I needed surgery. But they just saw me and said I could go. So I assume I've been cured. It's a miracle. And you're going, no, 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 no. It's a machine. And there's a person in a white coat because it's sterile. That doesn't mean your eyes have been fixed. They actually took an image of your eye they don't know what it's for they've been woken up at the crack of dawn there's a minister coming who's cutting a ribbon you know who's going to tell them their world has changed has it changed we we don't know yet and that's one of the other risks that do you roll out this project and have it be you know a self cleaning thing or do you actually do smaller pilot projects do you roll it out do you see what happens after 5 years and then decide to extend it to the whole country so I, there is this sense, and you know, Summer and I have talked about this before, who's, who's a journalist from India, um, about how in India that has to be the way you do things. If you actually wait to actually fix every single thing, nothing will ever get done. And he was talking about the health insurance scheme that has been rolled out using biometrics quite successfully, where he talked to someone who said, of course there are loopholes. I discover them every day. I have a whole department of people doing nothing but plugging the new loopholes that get discovered every day, but that's just the way you do things. So. In a way, is India being you know, great at actually rolling this out, or is it actually completely steamrolling people's civil liberties and rolling it out? And that's one of the other difficulties I have. Are you going to be paternalistic about development and say, you know, we will develop you whether you like it or not? Or are you going to be paternalistic about privacy, saying you will care about privacy whether you like it or not? Yes, it's not important. You haven't even conceived of what it means. But by God, I'm going to protect your rights, kicking and screaming. Uh, which I sometimes feel I'm in the position of doing. Um, We have all kinds of other, I mean, there are people who say the project is unconstitutional because it hasn't actually been sanctified by parliament. That's a sort of sticky argument because to the extent that the prime minister has approved it, to the extent that there's budget being thrown at it, is it really unconstitutional in quite that way? Um, But there are a lot of challenges that are pending before the Supreme Court. We've had interim decisions, last september where they said that so there was a judge from my city who actually said he couldn't get his pension because he didn't have this uid number and he said i have other forms of id why am i not getting my pension so he approached and has now gone to the supreme court and they actually said that no one should be disadvantaged for lack of this id and it shouldn't be a barrier to entitlement and benefits Um, and more recently um, about three or four weeks ago they came up with a further order so they've been hearing them as a batch of petitions Um, And it's been civil society, it's been other people who've been affected by it who've actually made claims. And the recent one was where they actually went so far as to say we are actually asking the government to roll back all of the executive orders by which they've linked this scheme to various welfare schemes and said you will not have these linkages, Um, you're just going to de-link all of this. And the second interesting development was that um, someone was raped in Goa, not new, um, happens every day in India. Uh, increasingly, and it's horrible, but this was a case where the kind of function creep that I was worried about happened, where the Central Bureau of Investigation went to the UID authority and said, give us your database so we can check for who might have committed this crime. Give us everyone enrolled in GOA. They didn't say, here are two fingerprints of suspects. Can we validate them against your system? They said, well, why don't you just do a data dump? And fortunately, the UID had the sense to go to the Supreme Court and say, we're not giving you the data. You know, take us to court, we don't care, we're not giving it to you. This wasn't what it was meant for. We can't just keep giving the entire database to anybody who wants to use it. So in this interim decision, the Supreme Court said no agency will have access to it. But they came up with a very strange caveat, and it's interesting to see how that will develop, without that person's consent. There is no consent model. There is no data protection law. There is no way that you would even go and seek consent of someone. And there's questions around whether that would even be lawful, you know, whether it would violate protections against self-incrimination under our Constitution. Um, The last point is interesting, and this sort of is the difference between the two schemes. The the low-tech one with the blue and yellow is um, very much about citizenship. It's on the back of the Census Act. It's done with the Census exercise, and it's very much about pinning down only citizens can get this. And we want a database, a register of citizens. But the UID only concerns itself with residents. They're saying, look, we're just an authenticating platform. We actually, we can't get into questions of citizenship. We're a technology company. We don't do that. Um, so they've just left questions of citizenship aside as being too difficult and problematic, saying anyone who's a resident in India can get this. So you have this weird sort of you know, overlapping um, Venn diagram of where like different, um, you know, one is collecting about 23 fields of data, one is collecting eight, One has certain biometrics, one has others. They're being collected by different agencies. People don't quite understand what each one does, whether they're signing up for one or both. And what's happened is because there was a bit of a turf war over these two schemes, we came up with a very Asian compromise, which was you collect half, you collect half. Now you have issues of interoperability and standards, saying how do these two pieces of data actually communicate, and how do these two data sets actually work. This is the reality check I mentioned earlier about somebody being dragged off against his will by some feudal overlord. And my concern is when the feudal overlord turns into the algorithmic overlord. Um, But I have weird dystopias. So this is what's happening. This is how people are subverting the system. The chairman of the ID project used to love showing this picture of the old electoral voting ID card saying, someone has gone and registered themselves with a picture of their pet. That would never happen with biometrics. This is actually done with the new biometric ID project. And it's always a Pomeranian. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> always that yappy, yappy Indian dog, but, um, or German. But um, so someone has gone and done this. And we, we're seeing all kinds of instances where there letters with the wrong person's picture, photos of non-humans. So zombies are walking the earth in India. Acknowledgements, you know, photos mismatched. That's a tree in that image and this is where the coriander from the first quiz comes in one of the most innovative sort of hacks um, and sort of political strategies around this is someone has managed to get himself registered in this project um, with completely fictitious details his name translated from telugu his local language his, his first name is uh, coriander kothmir his last name is biryani nice rice dish date of birth sometime in the 1870s um, and um uh, village you know place of birth raw mango village and what picture does he have a picture of his cell phone so you know at the moment that he should be scanned he's just clearly held his phone out and that's actually been accepted by the scheme so it's really interesting to see i mean agreed these are anecdotal and they're a small fraction and you know we can't just read too much into the fact that because there'll be people who say yeah well what about, about all the 100 million that haven't had this issue so i don't want to dwell too much on this except to show that this is the sort of compelling story that actually makes people sit up and think, hang on a minute, do I even trust this? Um, And start thinking about it in a way that I could blather on about the law and policy implications, nobody would care. I show them the ACLU pizza delivery advert, you know, and say, this is what's going to happen with your data, and they think, oh, my God. You know, so when you start talking bottom line and how it actually affects prices and access, then it changes. Um, So this could have been the alternate title for my talk, This is how I feel most days, Um, and it's interesting to know why. This is a great logo from Privacy International. They wrote this wonderful paper called Aiding Surveillance about how development projects are ending up documenting and tagging people in a way that uh, fuels surveillance of vulnerable populations who don't have the agency to say no, who can't consent, who don't quite understand, you know, sort of as a condition of access, as a condition of benefits, as the price of participation, you will give us your data. Um, so I, I love the sort of you know snake and the dollar sign, but I, I kind of think of this as you know when you think of ICT4D, which is all oh great, it's also wonderful, hurrah, tech rah rah. When did the D change from development to discrimination? I often find that with a lot of techno utopian projects, you're effectively fueling discrimination, saying you know you belong, you don't, you're included, you're not, and the system will keep rejecting you and saying well it's the system, I didn't do it. Technology is neutral. It's not a human being denying you something. It's the machine. And the machine is always right, especially in India, where people sort of look. I mean, we, we worship machines. We put tikka on it and worship it as the thing that gives us our livelihood. So it's a sacred relationship. Um, it's always right. Um, and the issues of scale. I mean, I did sensationally say, you know, does size matter? And this is one of the issues. Um, so that's from the report of one of the biometric vendors uh basically saying that you know in most places about 5% of fingerprints are unreadable in india it's more like 15% so that's like you know 180 million right now it could go up to 200 as we grow so 200 million people might actually have issues with the system with fingerprints iris scans less so but with issues of cataract and malnutrition and other things that is also a bigger error rate than in other countries and the it ha- they this is in their own white paper, their biometrics committee standards document, they themselves say actually it hasn't been studied in the Indian context, and there are other documents that show it hasn't actually been studied anywhere. We just don't know if they will work. And there is this sort of very positive view of, well, we'll figure it out as we go along, which worries some people and makes other people say, yeah, well, yeah, let's figure it out as we go along and see. But then at what point does it become too big to fail? We're at that sort of halfway point now. We've got 600 million people enrolled. We've spent lots of money on this, but we're also on the brink of an election. Is someone going to say, well, actually scrap the whole project? And if they do, which some people would like, what happens to 600 million people's fingerprints floating around a system being bought, sold, bartered, identity theft? I mean, it's staggering to think about what could go wrong if they cancel it as much as what could go wrong if it survives. And we just don't know. I mean, the BJP hasn't officially backed or rejected the project in any way. They've used it more on a sort of personal level, you know, when Mr. Nilekani himself quit the project and stood for elections. Um, Then there was the, oh, he couldn't even manage this project. Like, do we trust him to be a minister or even a prime minister? So it's come about in sort of personal bashing, but we don't actually know what their official stand is. So, you know, we'll know on Friday who's in power, but soon we I guess we'll know what happens to the future of the project. So I mentioned some of these inclusion-exclusion issues, but. When it becomes so ubiquitous, do you have a kind of Metcalfe's law operating where the costs of exclusion, if you don't participate and you're not part of the database, are so huge? I will probably face that. I will find I can't have a credit card, I can't have a phone, I already haven't renewed my driver's license because they want my fingerprints. So, am I going to be excluded even though I'm allegedly privileged just because I have certain philosophical objections to being tagged and identified? Am I going to become an outcast um, and unable to participate? And I think. When people talk about inclusion, it's very much this sort of you know, trope about inclusion, which I see as largely being about financial inclusion. It's not about social inclusion. And one of the weirdest conferences I've attended is with the LGBT community in Bangalore, where they wanted my you know, sort of overview of the project. And they were being cynical. They were saying, look, everyone's saying we should be so happy that this project is seemingly progressive, and saying you, know, you can be male, female, or transgender. Isn't that great? Isn't that pretty damn progressive for India? And you're thinking, yes it is, but you know, centuries of oppression and discrimination, they're not buying it, they're going, they're just gonna put us all on a list somewhere so they can track us and they know where we live. Should we be nervous about this rather than embrace it? And I talked to them and the kinds of questions that came out in this were actually heartbreaking. People, you know, they were looking at me thinking I had all the answers and that I represented the government in some way. And they were saying, well, I'm having a sex change operation I'm, you know, changing from male to female. Currently, I don't have to identify. I can self-identify anywhere I want. I can be who I want, you know, depending on the day I, you know, whatever I feel like wearing. Um, does, do I have to be frozen in a system as being something? And if I do, what does you know will my fingerprints change after hormone replacement therapy? Will the error rates change? Will I keep getting pinged off the system? Will I get rejected every time I try and claim benefits and you're going, "I don't actually know?" And they're like, it must be somewhere. The government has thought about it. And you're going, probably not. And the other, even more sort of, you know, critical thing was someone said, well, I inherited three pieces of land as the oldest son of a Hindu Brahmin family. Do I lose my land if I say I'm a woman after my operation? What does it do to my property rights? And the government has planned for this, right? And you're going, no, they bloody haven't. You know, of course, they're barely figuring out how to authenticate people. They're not thinking 17 levels down about, you know, sexual uh issues and property rights um i a lot of people will say well nothing works in india and you know you want to give people dignity well they don't fucking have it now you know what do you think the system is going to deprive that they currently have Um, and my i guess the only answer i have to that is that you're basically foreclosing a right to information self-determination if you don't fight for it now once they're in the database once the system knows them it's too late. Uh, once you, if you don't build in the rights, you don't build in a legal framework that supports this. If you don't make the right design and architecture choices, if you don't allow people, you know, maybe there are alternatives. Do you have it on a chip, on a card, where they can manage it? It's not in a centralized database. Do you, you know, do you use different kinds of noise in the system to, you know, make it agnostic as to whether someone is or isn't involved when you're querying the database? Are there different technical fixes you can have? Um, uh, have, these, have these even been thought about? When you, look about tra- uh, when you look at trade-offs, have you really done a cost-benefit analysis? That isn't just about the financials of we will save X through leakages versus we will gain X. Is it a, what about the social costs? What about the emotional costs? What about all kinds of other costs that is never quantified? Um, how do you build a narrative? How do you how do you have the debate on your own terms? Because you know if, if there's this binary that you're either for it or against it, which all of you in this room are familiar with. Um, How how do you progress, you know? Is it sort of saying, I hate the project, kill it, versus it's amazing, it's gonna solve every problem. Where is the space for a middle ground or a discourse about, we need identification, but maybe not this version of it. Maybe there are fixes we can have. How do we make that happen? And what are the business incentives? Can you appeal to private sector actors and say, why don't you make privacy a big deal? Because if you do, and you roll it out, you know, without it being a government hand-me-down top-down kind of thing, will that work? So these are all the sorts of, I mentioned robot lady here because someone asked me after I gave a talk in Amsterdam, how will I know them? I'm going to India and I said, know what? And it was sort of, you know, you know, by these gouged out eyes, will you know them? I was like, what do you mean? She thought people who had participated in the project would look different. And then someone next to me was going, she thinks they're robots, she thinks they're robots, she thinks they'll be visibly walking around like this. Because she literally was like, "Where will I find these biometricized people? They're not. They're amongst us. They live between you and me." Um, so I just mentioned most of these things already. So I'll just leave that up there. There is one of, one of the sort of good, if unintended, consequences is we may get a privacy law out of this because there's been so much drama about this that one of the positive externalities might be well, if we're going to roll out all these e-governance schemes, and you know surveil the heck out of everyone, maybe we should have a law that actually deals with data protection, so we may actually have that. Um, I've mentioned some of the sort of alternatives, and I think that's kind of, two years ago, I would have said, I just want the project to die. Now I'm sort of saying, well, if it's not going to die, how can we make it better? And also saying, what are the alternatives, because I've realized there's no point preaching about how awful the project is if you don't suggest something better. And I think that's a discussion I would love to have learning from other countries, you know, failures. I think failures teach you a lot. So it would be great if we could do that. And this I'm going to end with. So I love this expression that a friend of mine came up with. And it has then sort of gone into folklore. This idea of a cycle gap. Some of you will know the notion of jugad in India, which is kind of this wheeling dealing, you know, sort of chutzpah where you sort of make a space for yourself. Cycle gap is a more visual metaphor where it's sort of saying, It's physically in traffic jams. Like it's the exact width that it takes for a cycle to squeeze through traffic. But metaphorically and sort of philosophically, it's this idea of how do I game the system? Where are the cracks? How do I find my little space in this? And I think a lot of people sort of fatalistically say, nothing works in India. This project won't either. It'll fall apart. It won't work. There are hacks. There are workarounds. Don't worry about the privacy, because people will sort of legislate around it and find their own way. And it would be a shame because you spend so much money on it and there are a lot of people who genuinely believe they've been given a new entitlement, that they've given a passport to a new world. So it would be tragic if that were to actually happen. But I, I, I have great faith in my people to sort of find the cycle gap and worm their way out of any situation. So I'll just end with that. Happy to take questions.
0: India, in terms of ethical hacking, these types of systems—is yeah. is it very frowned upon or punished for people to try and, and gain the biometrics and try and find examples of how this could fall apart or cause people
1: issues? Or is, I mean, I think in a corporate context, or? in a corporate context, ethical hacking is not so great. Um, it is frowned upon, but I think in this kind of context, we've done it with electoral voting machines. You know, within a few days they'd hacked it and you know put it on YouTube, saying, "Look how we you know game this." And even now in these elections, um, it, they, when they were testing one of the electronic voting machines, they found that no matter what button you press, the vote was going to go to the BJP, and that was sort of publicised very widely. So I think this this idea of sort of subverting systems and overcoming them is is very common and expected. Even it's a, you know you're a loser if you actually abide by the rules, as you can see if you've tried driving in India.
2: I told you I came back from India thinking this was a good scheme, you cured me of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but let me go back to the reason why I first thought there was something there, and yeah. this came from talking to the Congress Party politicians of the left yeah. who were worried about how you delivered services to rural villages where the corruption that went yeah. through the normal bureaucratic processes yeah. meant that by the time you reached the villager, yeah. There was nothing left. Right. It was like a stream that trickled down exactly. to nothing. Yeah. And their argument was this was going to prevent that. so other words, the the person with the identification number was now going to be able to bypass this group of bureaucrats who were draining away all these benefits yeah. which they were providing uh, from Delhi, or allegedly were providing from Delhi. So the question is is if that was the aspiration, which I think the election they had in mind, yeah. among others. How do you, how do you do something about that problem while still protecting privacy? Yeah. Obviously, this is not the answer. To sure. But what is the answer?
1: I mean, I think one of the concerns I have with that rationale is that the locus of control and the locus of responsibility is on the person least able to exercise any sort of agency. You're sort of shifting, you know, the fault finding and the burden of proof onto the weakest person in the chain. You're saying, you know, you're the person who's actually wanting this benefit desperately. Let's make you the criminal who needs to, you know, use the biometrics. They're not putting RFID chips on the trucks that carry this. They're not biometrically identifying all the actors in the chain who are responsible for delivery. They're not actually making all the actors accountable. They're making the recipient accountable. So I I have, I think there's a sort of, you know, parallax error in terms of where you're trying to solve the problem and i've talked to nandan about this i mean i've known him for 20 years he's an old friend you know we happen to be on the on different sides on this but um nandan has always said look i'm not all of government i'm part of government i can fix the identification piece which is what i've been asked to do that's my mandate but i'm not all of government i can't fix every single element of corruption of delivery of all the, all of those have to happen as well and i think that's why there's a call for a more holistic look at this saying we don't just fix the identification piece because lots of vendors can make money out of it, and it's an easy fix. How do we actually change the you know, socio, you know, socioeconomic factors? How do we change, you know, how do we educate people? How do we change corruption? And I mean, with the NPR, for example, when they've actually wanted to check that these are all the right people, they've gone and posted all the information in schools publicly saying, can you come and check that those are the right details? Uh, So, you know, and they're moving from a paper-based system to a digitized one without really thinking through a lot of issues. And I think it has to be a complex approach to the problem. And I think what they've also found, and this is not necessarily so just in India, but in other countries, that when you look at fraud and welfare and delivery, identification is like, you know, six or seven on the list of why this takes place. People misrepresent facts. They say they're entitled to benefits when they're not. They say they're below the poverty line when they're not. Uh, they misrepresent a lot of other things there are several other factors that result in fraud and corruption that have nothing to do with identification so I think if we only focus on the identification piece we're not seeing the whole picture so I think I would say that there needs to be a lot more social sciences research around the complexity of the problem and not just look to the ID to solve everything because it can't it you know it's a probabilistic technology it's never going to do that
0: uh, you mentioned uh, very briefly the deduplication,
1: Yeah. and uh, to what
0: extent can the scheme allow, to the extent that it's only an in authentication, yeah. initially, right. for multiple identities to solve some of the problems that you're describing, or is that not being looked at it's as part of, because of the, dedupl- is the deduplication an important part of this, I guess It's the another. sole
1: reason for the UID's existence. So they're, they're saying we only do two things. We we deduplicate and we issue numbers, that's all we do. We deduplicate and we authenticate at the time of transaction when people ping the central database to say somebody's yes or no, and they don't want to do anything else. So yes, deduplication is very core to what they do, but there's no...
0: I'm asking, does it have to be? In other words, can no, you no, simply it's... have yeah. uh, a lot of the benefits through the authorization component and uh, dismantle the deduplication?
1: They haven't looked at that because I think if if you start off with the assumption that you have multiple identities in existing databases and that is the reason for fraud you want to deduplicate because you want someone to only function and exist once in the system and that's why they're so keen on deduplication and that's why a lot of the you know scientists and mathematicians i've talked to have said that you it, it's a bit of a lie to say it's voluntary because unless you have everyone in the database your deduplication is not quite perfect also so you know you, you it's It's sort of functionally integral to the project that you have everyone in it. Um, So no, they they definitely want you to register once. And in fact, um, I gave a talk on this to Latanya Sweeney's group, and uh, some of her kids wanted to actually do research on this. With they got, and I I keep forgetting how much money people at Harvard have. They just Mm -hmm. said, "Oh, we'll just get a few of the scanners and try it. You know, just play with it." So they actually played with some of the scanners, and in three hours, they'd managed to actually register more than once. Uh, because of the way they squinted, because of the angle at which they looked at the um, iris, and it's supposed to be infallible. But also, very interestingly, they tried pictures from their phones, from their laptops, which didn't register as people. They then created a composite. The person that does not exist was able to register in the system. They just you know, drew a person on their laptop and said, well, how about this? And it worked. So there are definitely issues around the tech. When it, even when it comes to deduplication. And there's a seven-year-old kid who's managed to get about three IDs. So we're hearing all these like, weird and wonderful stories of ways in which all the alleged you know, uniqueness and infallibility are actually not working out in real life. Yeah.
2: Well, thanks. Um, Nandan Nilakani has a cab- cabinet minister p- position. Uh, but the finance ministry and the home ministry, which once supported its Having buyers' and wars, is that correct?
1: That's because of they, they, they support the NPR. So that's been the turf war, saying that they prefer the NPR to this. Um, and that's now you'll you have this sort of half and half kind of solution that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, I just
2: wanted to ask about what, I'm
0: not sure how historically accurate the. I genuinely don't know. The Gandhi clip you showed, uh, the clip of Gandhi and he was upset about the, the cards, and you mentioned that the rhetoric, what I'm trying to ask is, is the rhetoric around the cards then about privacy, or what was sort
1: of. Whose who's rhetoric? Gandhi's rhetoric, yeah, the official
0: yeah. rhetoric? The anger that sort of surfaced around the card, the set about <laughs> privacy, because you mentioned that privacy wasn't maybe as important in India. No, Gandhi's
1: rhetoric was not necessarily just about privacy, it was about being identified and being discriminated and only Indians having to carry it in South Africa. So this all began in South Africa. So I've sort of used it as a parallel in thinking about it because I'm saying, we got our independence from that seed that was sown then. Is it now okay to document this population because we're doing it to ourselves? Does that change things? If it's not a colonial power imposing this on us, is it suddenly okay? Or are there other layers of discrimination in terms of caste and you know, religion and other kinds of things that this might actually facilitate? So I'm, I want to look at it in a sort of trajectory and say that was <laughs> the original beef against IDs. Mm-hmm. Have we moved on? And can this form of ID actually get around some of this? Or does it actually reinforce and you know, duplicate and replicate some of the concerns we had? I think
0: you're doing you know, that is really smart, because the privacy arguments have failed Here in a lot of the conversations around technology. So, what I really liked about you doing that was getting away from questions of privacy and shifting it to another set of political concerns. How does identification work in the
2: elections? that you're just wrapping up now, if it's so messy, is it not really difficult to run elections and have any idea?
1: You have voters' ID cards and you have registers, and there's been a lot of drama about people. Turning up to vote and then finding their names are not in the list, and then people saying, and they've brought ID with them, and then people saying, but it's not about the ID you show when you come to vote. You should have checked that you were already on our roster before; otherwise, you're not eligible to vote. So there's actually been some, but on the other hand, they've really, really tried hard. You know, they've you know climbed up the hills in Kashmir, you know, to get like one person in a little village to vote. So they've really tried to be inclusive, but. Um, there is talk that one day this might be linked that you know your id can be used for absolutely everything including voting but uh, that hasn't actually been implemented in this because the scheme isn't complete yet uh, and while people are being enrolled the back end in terms of authentication hasn't yet commenced so it hasn't been used for this election
2: yeah. one thing that aside like recently i did a little re-identification experiment on indian dating sites, yeah jeevansathi and um, and, like that. and What struck me is how much information many millions of people, or in a minority a of cases their relatives, had volunteered about themselves. Yeah. Not only their birth, their date of birth, but the hour and minute of their birth, the, the
1: Full blood, horoscopes,
2: well, their, their blood yeah. type, their uh, caste down to the very specific um, aid status, and a couple hundred people on each side identified as a project, which sort of suggested much more openness about very intimate personal details, yeah. um, then we would have, And, and are, in, and in fact, all,
1: all of these dating sites were actually what a lot of the militant organizations, like Toyba like, and other ones, have actually used to create false identities. They've just pulled stuff off of these databases to create new people and say, oh, well, here's all the demographic and we'll just create fake IDs with very real information. So they are a breeding ground for reader documents and legitimate documents. Um, the, the, this is something I grapple with because people keep saying, "But Indians aren't private," and to an extent, that's true. You know, we disclose all kinds of information about ourselves. But I think to then just extrapolate from that that we're not private about anything, is is a difficult thing. And I think that's actually what got me started into looking at privacy because I would lived in England for ten years, moved back, and then kind of thought, "Oh my God, you know, what's happened? Like people are disclosing everything." And um, I should actually end with a little clip
0: that I wasn't sure, but this will explain everything you need to know about privacy in India. try it Oops, what did I do Hey, what are Sir, you know, you camera nododo to follow I'm gonna see ಇದೆ ಸಾ ರೊಡು ಇವರು
1: this is the world a Next.
2: Please follow me. my dad, I don't want to rip any people.
1: Deaf
0: children got backed up <laughs> long I've got to newspapers <laughs> no matter've worked. tell you I have toiatric judge
1: her. hello listen to you after this credit card. okay Rodney she'll do more. J dear God I'll Hello? Papa,
0: father, $100, what
2: do you want to do? Papa, Dalda, Fanta, Shunti, Shinga,
0: Kamath Ustra. That's
2: condom is there, एट्स hmm. hmm.
0: हाँगो hmm. <laughs>
1: of the futility of trying to enforce privacy law in a country that may not take to it naturally, but we're trying. <laughs> any other questions, or
0: do we wrap up? Just one question. Sure. A yeah, hard one, but to end on. Um, so given that the, um, the force may be out of the barn with 600 people, 600 million people registered, registered already, difficulty that you noted in shutting that down, what does shaping it positively look like? Do you have any sense, I mean, to Joe's point, it's maybe a small piece in corruption, but just a small piece as I think you pointed out, um, how do we make something good out of this? How do you kind of limit the harm? Because I mean, I feel like oftentimes the the biggest problem that we run into is saying no, no, no to everything, which doesn't, you can't win on no. All you can do is delay the inevitable. So is there a way to make this, to get to get to a better yes, than we'll otherwise I think
1: one of our bullet points actually mentioned a lot of the fixes, and I think one of them is on making it genuinely voluntary. Because then, you know, you, you allow people access and you include them if they need it. But on the other hand, you're not sort of, you know, making it their single entry point into any kind of system. So I think making it voluntary is one way of fixing it. Um, I think having data protection laws help in terms of, you know, I'm not just saying in terms of sanctions, but in terms of positive principles around how you collect data, who has access to it, how you share it, and actually sort of building good practice around this. Um, I think that's really critical because that underpins, you know, usage of all of these. Um, there needs to be a lot more evidence-based data in terms of policymaking because right now they're just saying, "We hope it works. We'll just throw it out there and see what happens." And I think there's some social sciences research being done now around, you know, is it actually fixing leakage? Is it actually? And I think there's a lot of data that's now coming out as the project is being rolled out. There are people doing longitudinal studies around this, and I think those will help shape some of these and not just in terms of what needs to change within the id project silo but in terms of other knock-on um, projects or systems or delivery mechanisms and how those need to be addressed so i think this will throw up a lot of the cracks in the system that need to be addressed um, i think what the supreme court is going to come out with in its final decision will be very instructive uh, in terms of how, which government agencies have access to data and under what conditions um, I think looking at the sort of discriminatory potential um, for the ID and finding ways to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, when you look at the, there's a policy document that the marketing people did, which is sort of this wonderfully catchy title of communicating to a billion, sort of saying, what is the communication strategy we use? People are going to hate it. People are going to find all kinds of fault. How do we overcome it? And I think in the same way that they recognize there are going to be, and There's actually some good stuff in there where they've said, you're going to be dealing with people who are sick, who are crippled, who are disabled, all kinds of things. Here are the kinds of ways in which you need to be sensitive in handling the data of these people, or in the way that you get them even to approach the scanner. You know, don't make them intimidated by the machine. So in the same way, I think there's a lot of ways in which you can flow down good practice, even in the way that you respect the dignity of the people involved. And I think, for me, the key thing is putting the person back into the equation. The second you start thinking of everyone in here as a number, you've lost. So I think finding ways that you still respect the individual behind all of these schemes, because eventually all of this delivery, all of these you know, subsidies, the food, the grain that's being rotted, it's to actually pull someone out of poverty. And I think being mindful of the very human elements of the problem and not just thinking of it as a techno-utopian project that's gonna make money for Microsoft or make money for Accenture and you know, the whole sort of defense industrial complex that's involved in it, and saying, well, that might be the reality of it, but how do we actually give people what they need and want while minimizing some of the consequences of it that can be defrayed in some way? Great note.